The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, At Sacred City, we... We want to make disciples, we want to plant churches, we want to renew the city. That's what we do here. And we think the way, because it's the biblical way, it's the way the apostles did it, the way to accomplish that is to preach the gospel, is to disciple men and women, and to raise up men into leadership, to lead missional communities, to lead churches, uh, to preach the gospel. And uh, the only way you can do that is by letting young men, um, from, by me, getting out of the way and letting young men have the pulpit, and and get their feet wet, get, you know, kind of see what it feels like to be anointed by God, to preach the word, to study, to put that much time in. So I'm, I'm excited that this morning we get an opportunity to hear from our uh, resident, Samuel Schmidt, and he's going to be preaching the gospel for this uh, this morning out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you don't know Sam, Sam uh, was a pastoral intern last year. This year he's a church planting intern. We're testing his calling. You see if he's called to to possibly plant a church in the future. And that's what we're doing all this year. So hopefully he's going to be launching a new missional community in this year. Um, he's, he's really putting together and leading Sacred City, or I mean, so, I'm sorry, City Seminary, our fully accredited college that we're going to be launching in the fall. Um, so he's been putting a lot of time in. And uh, I, I think, uh, I'm really thankful for Sam. I'm looking for him. There he is. Okay, he's here. Good. I haven't seen him yet this morning. Just making sure I didn't have to wing it. So I'm going to go ahead and and pray and then ask Sam to come on up and preach the gospel for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your spirit that is in us because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. I pray for my young brother here. I pray that you would anoint him. I pray that you'd fill him with boldness, that you would think through his mind and speak through his vocal cords. Um, I pray that he would have a humility, but he would also have this confidence and boldness that you are speaking through him and that your word never returns void, Father. So uh, I ask that you would come. You would do what you want to do. Teach us. Uh, Let us hear something uh, fresh. Let us see a different aspect of the gospel. Bring us to repentance and then give us the faith to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, we said, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Morning, yeah. Uh, Welcome on this fine Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I hope you are ready to watch some football tonight. I'm I'm excited. I, I'm really rooting for the Seahawks. I'm not really a Seahawks fan, but I think that their 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 jerseys are kind of cool, so I'm pulling for them. Um, so, um, like Justin said, my name's Sam. Uh, I'm the pastoral resident at Church Planting Resident, and part of my residency, as he said, is learning how to preach. And this is about probably my sixth or seventh time preaching, so I'm very much still a preaching rookie. Um, but but as I've as I've been having the experience of, of preparing a sermon and, and actually getting to, to preach, uh, one thing that I've learned um, from this week specifically, because this week is the shortest passage that I've had to preach so far, is that the shorter the passage is, the harder it is to preach. 
And, and it's, it's harder to preach because the deeper and deeper you go into scripture, the more of God's wisdom is, is out on display. And so um, I found this as a, a, a big hurdle this week to, to prepare and to, to study and to learn. So um, I, I'm, I'm really excited because at the bottom of that, no matter how deep we go, it always points us back to Jesus. It always takes us to the gospel. And so at Sacred City, we're a gospel-centered church. That means we talk about Jesus a lot. Um, and so today on Super Bowl Sunday, I'm not going to stand up here and, and try to tell you how to be the quarterback of your family, or I'm not going to teach you how to throw a touchdown for Jesus. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So, um, but before uh, I, I get going, I want to, to provide some context for the passage that we're studying. Um, the passage that Carrie, Carrie read, it was 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Um, and in this, in this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Now, this is a church that Paul had planted about two years prior to this letter. Um, and, and this church is uh, messy, um, jacked up is an understatement of this church. This church has, uh, they're, they're creating sex based upon the leadership. They are um, very sexual, sexually promiscuous. They are boasting in their spiritual gifts. They're suing one another. This is not a church that you would want to model your ministry after. But Paul is, is trying to explain to them that at the root of all of their problems is the reality that they are forgetting the gospel and how it shapes every part of their life. And so in his passage, Paul is trying to jog their memory about this message that he proclaimed to him. And he's trying to, to remind them in the manner in which he brought it and the goal for bringing it to them. So let's jump in. Verse two, or chapter two, verse one, there's Bibles in the back there. You can open up uh, the Bible app on your phone. There's Sacred City app. Um, grab a Bible. Verse one, chapter two says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Stop. Paul starts out what he's saying here by saying what he didn't do. He didn't come to, to preach lofty speech or lofty wisdom. Why is that? Why, why do you think Paul decided to not do that? Well, it's because the, the people of Corinth were all about the latest cool idea. They were all about the, the trendiest, latest speaker. Everyone who was saying something in Corinth was a smooth-talking, big-word-using, egotistical wordsmith with a flashy persona to match. And the people of Corinth loved this. They loved it. They would gather in the streets and in the plazas to hear people like this come out and talk. And this was a major form of, of entertainment for the Corinthians. These people who were, who were in the, the streets and the plazas who were talking were like the pop stars of their time. They were the Madonnas and the Jay-Z's. But not only was this a form of entertainment, but this was a, a symbol of power. If you were an eloquent speaker, if you could effectively wield lofty speech and cutting-edge wisdom, you were viewed as a, as a powerful person. So these guys were the makers and shakers of their culture. But Paul, 
He didn't conform to their methods of speech because his aim was so much higher than becoming the next speaker. He was, his aims were so much higher than having the, the next best idea. And I think if Paul were speaking to us in our culture today, he would say, hey, I didn't come with smoke machines. I didn't come with a laser light show. I didn't come with a cool, flashy graphic. I didn't come with a well-produced video. I didn't come with uh, scandalously clothed women with signs walking around. I didn't come with gangster-like hype men. I came as an ordinary man. All of those things could have easily drawn a crowd. And we see that in our culture. Like we see those things draw a crowd. Concerts are packed. Football games, packed. These things draw crowds easily. But Paul said, I had nothing to do with them. And because of this phenomenon, this phenomenon of the the flashy speech and the, the eloquent words of wisdom, the Corinthian culture was affecting how the Corinthian cult, the Corinthian church was listening to their preachers. This is what Ray Ortland says about them. The Corinthians were sermon connoisseurs critiquing their preachers as entertainers rather than critiquing themselves as Christians. So in other words, the Corinthians were so obsessed with the way in which preachers were preaching, the, the way they spoke, that they were completely neglecting the message in which they were sharing. And as I read that this week, man, I, I felt really convicted because I thought of how many times I've sat in a seat on a Sunday morning critiquing the preacher on what he says, how he says it, the gestures he uses, the imagery he uses. And and I felt like a fool. So let me ask you, how many times have you done this? You sat in your seat on Sunday mornings, critiquing what the pastor's saying rather than the message that he's bringing to you. And I think that that if, if this is what you're doing, then it's clear that you'd rather evaluate the preacher's presentation then evaluate your heart with the message that the preacher is trying to bring to you. When we, when we view preaching as a performance, we miss what God is trying to say through his messenger. Let's jump back. Verse 2 here. <clears throat> For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you remember last week's passage, uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 says that that the message of the cross is foolishness. Paul, he he came with a foolish foolish message and that's all he had. He isn't being anti-intellectual here. He is simply saying that the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the only message worth sharing. It's the only message worth knowing. And so Paul, Paul was so committed to the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified that he was willing to forget all other things. This was the only tool in Paul's toolbox. So Paul chose to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, not just Jesus and not just him crucified, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what we call the gospel or the good news. And I'll tell you why it's good news in a minute. But we need to know that a very dangerous thing happens when Jesus Christ and the crucifixion get isolated from one another. If Paul were to just preach 
Jesus Christ, without the crucifixion, he would be preaching a moralistic message. And if Paul were just to preach about the crucifixion without including the whole account of Jesus Christ, then he would be preaching a licentious message. Well, let me explain. If Paul were to preach only Jesus Christ, the man in his life, without the crucifixion, he would be teaching a moralistic message because he'd be saying, Jesus is just a role model. Jesus is just a guy that you should try to copy. So what, what that would promote is the, the mentality of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Uh, tie up all the loose, excuse me, loose ends. Shape up your life. Be the better person that you know you can be. And once you have become that better person, when the appearance of your life meets optimum goodness, then and only then have you earned God's favor. And some of us want to live like that's true. Like that's just a natural default for us that we want to, to be a good person. And then by being a good person, we can earn God's love. You think that if, if my good deeds could just outweigh the bad deeds, then I will have lived a good enough life. But thinking that you can be good enough on your own is a hoax. And the only one that you're deceiving is yourself. Your wife knows that you're not good enough. Your, she knows that you're not living up to the standard. Your, your boss knows that you're not good enough. Your MC knows that you really don't look a lot like Jesus at all. The only person you have fooled into thinking that you can reach a level of good enough is yourself. And it takes just one little gust of wind to knock down the, heart, the house of cards that is your false righteousness to bring you to a place of despair and to show you that this moralistic message is not a gospel at all. It's a sham. It's a deception. And it turns us into a religious snob. Now, on the other hand, if Paul only preached the crucifixion without preaching uh, the, the whole account of Jesus Christ... He would be preaching a licentious message. This is a message that would say this. Jesus has died for all of my sins. And therefore, it doesn't matter what I do anymore. I can be crazy. I can live, live. I can run my life amok. I can do whatever I want. And rather than, than acting and living according to God's way, we view ourselves as God and we do what we want. We, we think we can sleep with who we want. We think we can eat and, and drink as much as we want. We think we can do whatever we want. But this message is a sham too because it leaves us in a pit of our brokenness. It does nothing about our brokenness. The thing that makes these two false gospels, the, the moralistic and the licentious gospel, so dangerous is that there is an, a hint of truth to them. God does call us to be imitators of Christ. He does call us to, to let sh Christ shape what we do and what we, what we believe. And the gospel tells us that no matter how bad we are, no matter how bad our sin is, that if we are in Christ, we are forgiven. But by themselves, these two things are false gospels. Because you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. You can, you can never be good enough person to earn your salvation. You can never be a good enough person to advance in your sanctification. 
But at the same time, you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. You are the purchased and ransomed property of God. And because of this, we are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit because they are God's. This is why it's absolutely necessary for Paul to join the two together, to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. If he neglects one of them, then he has neglected the true gospel and he has produced a false testimony of God. So what is the gospel then? Well, the gospel is the whole account of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is good news because, because the message of Christ and him crucified addresses the, the most serious problem that you and I face as human beings. And, and this is simply put as this way, that we, we are severely at odds with God. There is no bigger issue than this. You may not think of this as your biggest issue, but friend, there's nothing that should, you, that should keep you up at night. There's nothing that should scare you more. That is, there's nothing that should make you panic as much as the reality is that you are not in good standing with God. You made me wonder, Sam, I'm, why do you say I'm not at good standing? I, I tithe. I read my Bible. I've got a shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. I mean, I feel like I'm, I feel like I've, I'm there. But this is why you are at odds with God. This is why you are severely opposed to God. You are not about the same things that God is about. You are not about the same things that God is about. God is about his glory. And because of your sin, you're all about your own glory. You're about self-glory. And since God is worthy of all glories, worthy of all praise, he will not tolerate us trying to steal his glory. Jonathan Edwards said this in regards to the situation. There is a dreadful, violent, and obstinate opposition of the will of the natural man to the will of God. The will of the natural man and the will of God Collide. And it's easy for us to see how a licentious person is an enemy of God because they're simply not doing what God wants them to do. Like we can see that. But how is a moralistic person at odds with God? If they're doing all the right things, how are they enemies of God? And although they might be doing the right things on the outside, they might be performing their intentions of their good deeds are to promote self-glory. All the good things they do are to, to promote themselves, to make much of themselves. They want to be viewed as, as a, a, a wise person or they want to be viewed as a, a, a gracious person, someone who's very generous. But they do it. So that they would get the credit. Even the good deeds of a moralistic person are about self-glory. And they are like filthy rags to God. So at the core, the moralist and the licentious person, they are all about self-glory. 
And, and because they are all about self-glory, therefore they are opposed to God. And, and the one who is opposed to God is deserving of God's wrath. But the gospel... Jesus Christ and him crucified is the remedy to this problem. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He came to earth as a human, but he was unlike any other human because he was not born into sin. Jesus was born sinless and he lived a sinless life. He never promoted self-glory. Jesus was always about the glory of the Father. And so, Jesus being about God's glory, he takes on the form of weakness. He is beaten, he is crucified, and he is placed on a cross. And in our place, Jesus takes on the wrath of God. As physically painful as it was for Jesus to go and get beaten and flogged within inches of death. As painful as it was to have a crown of thorns jammed onto his head. As painful as it was to have spikes driven through his hands and through his feet. That was only a shadow of the pain that he experienced in comparison to the wrath of God. Spurgeon says that Jesus experienced an amount of anguish of which we can form no conception. To know the wrath of God being poured out on us, we cannot put that into words. So this physical pain that Jesus felt in his crucifixion was just a shadow, just an ounce of the pain that he felt from God turning his back on him. And here's the thing. And, it, and it's hard for us to admit this because we, we don't really want to say it. But we are so sinful that Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die to pay for our sin. There was no option B. There wasn't a way for Jesus to work off our debt by doing more miracles or teaching more sermons on the kingdom of God or casting out more demons. Jesus had to die to pay for our sin. But this is where the gospel gets scandalous. Jesus willingly, in the midst of our, our quest for self-glory, Jesus willingly goes to the cross. And he willingly takes on the wrath of God for us so that we could experience the beauty of God's glory and the forgiveness of sins. He willingly took on God's most severe anger so that we would never have to know what it feels like for God to be angry with us. He willingly made himself a slave to sin so that we could feel the freedom of righteousness. Jesus willingly died in your place so that you would no longer be obsessed with self-glory, but so that you could see God in his glory, so that you could be completely enamored by God's glory. And he did this for us as we were opposed to God, as we were against God. And if that doesn't show you how much God loves you, I don't know what will. 
But the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified doesn't end there. Because Jesus was God-man, death could not hold him down. After three days of, of being buried, Jesus rose victorious over the grave. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of God. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to lead us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to remind us of what Jesus has done. Of how Jesus has freely given us and has secured for us our right standing with God for the rest of eternity. That we no longer oppose God. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the gospel. It's this good news that by grace, God, through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, sinners are saved. Jesus has made us right with God. And in Christ, we are no longer God's enemies. This is the good news. This is how that, that question is answered. This is how it's, God responds to us being enemies, that he pursues after us, that he comes after us. He sent his son to live and die for us in our place. And this gospel, this is the gospel we talk about every Sunday. But this gospel is the testimony of God that Paul has chosen to know exclusively. This is the only thing that Paul is clinging on to. I, I, there's nothing else that I know except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. But, but what does it mean to know Jesus Christ and him crucified? Does it, does it mean to study What does it mean? The Greek word that's used here is is oida. It's a loaded word uh, with complex meaning, but I'm going to break it down for you. To know. This word has has three layers. The first layer of of the word oida is is like a factual knowledge. uh, A knowledge that you can know about something in the way that you can know about a historical event. It's an, it's an intellectual knowledge. And this message that Paul is proclaiming has an aspect of this intellectual knowledge that comes along with it. I can know in the same way that I can know getting hit by a bus hurts without actually getting hit by a bus. Like I can study the laws of physics to know the force in which I'm going to get hit by that bus. I can study gravity to know how hard I'm going to hit the ground. I can study medically what will happen to my bones and my skin as I skid across the pavement. Like I can know that getting hit by a bus hurts by just learning those things. And this is the the type of knowing, this is an aspect of the type of knowing that Paul's talking about, an intellectual knowing. But the second layer is an intimate acquaintance with something. It isn't so much a knowledge about something, but it's a, a personal relationship between a person and an object through an experience. This would be like knowing getting hit by a bus hurts because I've been hit by a bus. Like, I know it hurts because I have felt the bus hit me. I felt the force. I felt the pull of gravity drag me to the ground. I felt my bones break and my skin tear as I've skid across the ground. This is an experiential 
aspect of knowing. I know that getting hit by a bus hurts because I've experienced getting hit by a bus. Not really, but if I were to have, I would know that getting hit by a bus hurts. And then the third layer of this word know is, is a response to the first two layers. Because I know intellectually, because I've, I, I've experienced it, it now changes how I live. Because you know, so for example, that I know that, that getting hit by a bus hurts because I've experienced it. Like I know that. And now, because I know how awful it feels, my life is going to radically change the way across the street. Like I'm going to look both ways twice, maybe three times, because I know how bad it hurts. So this word know has, has three layers. It's the, the intellectual, knowing about it, experiencing it, and letting it affect the way you live moving forward. Now that I've experienced being hit by a bus, how it feels, it's going to change how, how I live. Herman Bavnik puts it like this. To know God, well, let me backtrack here. This three-layered meaning of the word know is what Paul is talking about. To know about it, to, to experience it, to live differently because of it. But knowing the gospel involves these three layers. To know the gospel is, is more than just an intellectual pursuit. It's more than, than that. It's more than just changing the way you live. It's, it's all three of those things strung together. Knowing about it, experiencing it, and letting your experiences change the way you live moving forward. Herman Bavnik puts it like this. To know God or to know the gospel does not consist of knowing a great deal about him, about God or, or about the gospel. But of this rather, that we have seen him and his work in the person of Christ. That we have encountered him on our life's way. And that in the experience of our soul, we have come to know his virtues his righteousness and his holiness, his compassion and his grace. That's what it means to know on all three levels, to know the gospel. But since we live in an educated culture, it's easy for us to reduce knowing the gospel to, to a set of, of intellectual feats and into memorizing a few verses or, or reading books or listening to preaching or studying scripture. Now those things are good. Like we as Christians should be doing that. People who experience the gospel should be doing that, but that does not encapsulate the whole aspect of knowing the gospel. So to know the gospel, we must also experience the gospel. And, and as much as easy it is for me to explain what it is to, to intellectually know the gospel, like I can point you to the bookstore and say, just start reading, like point you to the Bible, point you to some podcasts until you start reading. But to know the gospel in the experiential way is more difficult to explain because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does in letting us experience the gospel is he allows us to believe that the gospel, the, what I shared with you, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the true word of God. 
He gives us a taste of the reality of that truth. He gives us a taste of the sweetness of God, the gospel, and his love for us. He gives us a firm confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. (coughs) Excuse me. He shows us and assures us that our identity is in Christ and that by the grace of God, we have been forgiven from our sin and we are now counted as righteous. To experience that gospel, to experience the gospel is for the truth that you can study with your intellect to become real in your heart. And there's no way you can just do that. You can't, you can't talk yourself into experiencing the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is to have that that intellectual knowledge to become known in our heart, to experience the gospel is the best thing that can ever happen to us. There's nothing better. And when good things happen, you respond, right? When we experience the gospel, the, the spirit gives us faith to believe. And for the first time this happened, the first time this happens, when we believe for the first time, This is called conversion. But experiencing the gospel is not a one and done thing. It's not a one time thing. We don't experience the gospel once and then never experience again. No, our lives are meant to be a continuing and deepening experience of the gospel. Experience the gospel is a lifetime occurrence where the more we experience the gospel, the more our love for God the more our love for God and the love for his glory increases. And something happens when we experience the gospel, we become worshipers. When we experience the gospel, we become worshipers. This is the only response to experiencing the gospel that there is. If you experience the gospel, if the Holy Spirit makes the truth of the word of God real in your heart, You cannot help but become a worshiper. And I'm not just talking about a Sunday morning worshiper or a worshiper in your car as you listen to Christian music on your way to work. I'm talking about a worshiper whose life is filled with worship. That every aspect of your life has been impacted by this gospel and it influences it. And therefore, you become a worshiper in what you do. Seriously, everything that you do becomes worship. The way you eat, the way you work, the way you create, the way you celebrate, the way you relax, the way you sleep, everything is impacted by the gospel. And in doing it, in response to the gospel, it has become worship. Because we have experienced the gospel, our lives show a deep affection and a deep appreciation for Jesus and what he has done. And when you are experiencing the gospel, you are living differently. You, you live differently because you are living in a different reality than what you were before the spirit made that true in your heart. You're living in a reality that you are made right with God, that Jesus has become sin so that you could be pardoned. Brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that it's in our nature to be content with knowing the gospel intellectually, 
without experiencing the gospel. I think it's, it's in our nature to want to learn about it and not allow it to affect us, to, to experience it and to allow it to change how we live. I think we do really well at, at promoting the intellectual side of the gospel about learning and studying. I think that's great. It is great to study the gospel. I think our fight clubs and our MCs do a great job of, of helping you to know about the gospel. I think our Sunday gathering can help you know about the gospel. But until you experience the gospel, those are just words on the page. Until the spirit of God makes that, that truth real in your heart, those are just words on a page. And when you don't experience the gospel, you won't live a life shaped by the gospel. Church, it's, it's my prayer. It's my prayer that we would be people who know the gospel on all three layers. To know the gospel intellectually, to study it diligently. To be people who experience the grace of God on a daily and an hourly, on a momentary basis. To experience the good news deep within our hearts. And to live like that's true. And to live like the reality that God has made us aware of is true in a way that, that, that promotes the gospel, that makes much of Jesus. Paul, he has demonstrated to the Corinthians that he knows the gospel according to all three layers. By announcing the gospel was a sole, sole focus... The cross shaped his entire message and his whole approach to sharing that message. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And I, this is Paul, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. If Paul were to preach in a way that exhibited how awesome of a guy he was, the cross would have been emptied of his power. It would have gone directly against the message that Paul was trying to share. So Paul, what he does, he takes a humble posture. Because when we are in Christ, we have no choice but to be humble. Because we cannot stand on our own good works. We cannot stand on what we have done. We can only stand on the righteousness of God. On the righteousness of Christ. What Christ has done for us. And so Paul knew that he was bad enough that Christ had to die for him. And he had continued to experience the outpouring of grace and mercy that Jesus offered in the gospel. And so he is living differently than before. The fact that he is even writing to a church to encourage them in Christ is a testament to that because before he was trying to stop the church in his tracks. Paul knows that the gospel shapes everything that he does and it shapes the way he does ministry. So he came in weakness knowing that the same God who had converted his soul from an enemy of God to a, a follower of Christ would demonstrate the same power in the Corinthians to show them so the Corinthians would know the power of God. 
This is why Paul does what he does. Look at verse five. He says, I did these things so that that that's a big indicator word. When you see so that it's kind of a purpose statement so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men. So your faith may not rest in the personality of Paul, but in the power of God. The whole reason why Paul presents presents himself weak is because that is the reality. He's a weak man. He's subject to fear. He's, he is nothing special. He knows that. He, um, God uses this kind of man to display his power. And as our faith rests in the power of God, our faith is unshakable. Where if it rested in the wisdom of man or the personality of man or, or in the, the, the persona of man, then it would be subject to failure. Paul did what he did so that the Corinthians faith would rest in the power of God. Paul came to the Corinthians knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the message that was so important to hear. But the way Paul did it, the way that Paul shared that message is also important. He didn't come posing as some superstar. He came in weakness of himself, but in doing the work of the, but in doing so, the spirit demonstrated his work and his power. This is how the gospel should be proclaimed. This is what our lives should look like. Uh, uh, lives modeled after what Paul has done in coming with a, a great message, the, the power of God, the wisdom of God, but he comes in humility. So here's the applications that I, I want you to walk away with today. First thing, what I want you to do. And the second is how I want you to do it. Here's the first part. What, you, what I want you to do, what God wants you to do. It's not about me. It's about what God says. You should be a herald of the good news. You should come, since you have experienced the gospel, since it's the best information you've ever received, the best news you've ever received, this should propel you to want to tell others about it. You should, you should, there should be something inside you that just pushes you out. You can't, you can't help but share it, to let it out, to let it go. We share this good news. We share the gospel as we experience the gospel because it is the best news that we've ever received. And good news is not something to be kept inside. That means we tell our friends, we tell our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, anyone we have a relationship with, whoever we're watching the Super Bowl with, we tell them, about Jesus and what he's done for us. We tell them about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because we want them to know. We want them to know, not just this, not just this, but everything. We want them to know the love and experience the gospel for themselves. And so as we do that, as we tell them, as we proclaim, as we herald the good news, we pray for them. We pray for them because no matter how, how well we tell them, no matter how well we present it to them, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make that truth known. 
So on behalf of them, we go to God and ask for the spirit to move, to do a good work. We pray that they would be able to to experience, to, to taste the sweetness of the gospel. And here's the second part, how you do it, how you tell them. You don't tell them about Jesus so you can promote yourself as a superstar Christian. You don't tell them about Jesus in an arrogant way because I was so good, because I was so cool. Jesus, was, he's probably obligated to, to, to save me. We don't do that. We assume a humble posture like Paul. We come to them in our weakness. We come to them. We show them our brokenness. We show them that we are in need of just as much grace as they are. We are honest about the true us. And in doing so, we don't boast. And when we do boast, we boast in what Jesus has done for us. We boast in the gospel. We come as weak messengers with the great news. We come as as people in weakness knowing that we are in need of grace. And we do this for the same reason that Paul says in verse 5. So, so that our friends, our co-workers, our, our neighbors, so their faith won't, won't rest on me and my personality or my wisdom or my insights. So that their faith will rest on the power of God. So church, go be heralds of good news and do it in weakness knowing that God is strong. That in your weakness, God is capable of doing great things. Look at the church in Corinth. Paul came as a weak man. And in coming as a weak man, God spirit did some great work. So now there's actually a church in Corinth. Go as weak people expecting God to do great things. To expect the power of God to be manifested. For the spirit of God to work. And as I close, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a church that knows only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Imagine how conflict would be resolved if we knew Christ, if we knew that, that Jesus laid down his preferences, laid down himself so that we could be made right. How would that affect how we approach conflict? Imagine how willing everyone would be to serve. If we knew Jesus Christ and him crucified, the one who came to serve us, how much would we want to serve? Man, I bet there would be a waiting list to get going with children's ministry. Imagine if everyone's needs were being met as we knew Jesus Christ and him crucified, as we gave ourselves sacrificially to one another. And imagine the worship. Imagine the power and the zeal of worship that would happen within these walls. Imagine a church singing to God because he has done some great things. But not just the worship in here on Sunday mornings. Imagine the lives lived of worship outside of these walls. Imagine a city getting to experience people who are all about Jesus. All about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just think of the impact that that could have on our city. 
Sacred City, this change, this, this change of knowing only Jesus Christ and Him crucified begins with us. So let us commit to knowing, to knowing intellectually, experientially, and living like it's true. Let us commit to knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because this is to know God's grace to man. Father God, we are thankful. We are so thankful for the message of the gospel that Paul came to share. We are thankful that that you, before the foundations of the earth, you made this plan to be. That you knew as you were creating man, as you, you were sculpting him and shaping him, you knew that this man would rebel against you someday. That you continued to make him. And you knew that your son, your one and only son, would one day be led to a cross. He would be beaten, brutally beaten, and he would be nailed to a tree. And because he was nailed to a tree, he took on our sin. He took on all our iniquity. He took on everything that was bad. He took on our desire for self-glory. And he, he put it to death. And then he clothed us in his righteousness. That we are no longer opposed to God. We are no longer opposed to you because we stand in Christ. God, help us to live like that's true. God, teach us. Show us. Show our minds what it looks like to know you. Show our our hearts what it looks like to experience you. God, may your spirit move in us. May your spirit make those truths become a reality in our hearts. God, and would we live differently because of it? Would Would your gospel do a good work in us to make us heralds? to make us people who proclaim the message of God, to to share the good news of of the gospel with our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. God, and would we please do this for, for your glory? God, would we do it humbly? Would we do it in a way that, that doesn't promote ourselves, but it promotes Jesus Christ and makes much of you and makes little of us? God, would you please do this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to the table today, we come remembering Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the blood of Christ that is spilled for you, the body of Christ broken for you. This is to remember what Jesus has done. So, And it's also... It also helps us to remember what's coming. This is a a foretaste of the feast to come. To know that that in heaven there will be a banquet, a party to celebrate the good work of Jesus. So as you come today, come in awe of Jesus and what he's done in spilling his blood and breaking his body for you. But also come as if it's a celebration, knowing that this is a foretaste of the feast to come. Men, would you come up who are serving?